do you love audiobooks? You can get a free 30-day trial membership to audible.com by visiting audibletrial.com slash divebarrockstar. They have thousands of audiobook titles, as well as podcasts, guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, A-list comedy, and exclusive Audible originals you won't find anywhere else. Get your free trial membership at audibletrial.com slash divebarrockstar. Welcome to the Dive Bar Rockstar Podcast, a show exploring the lives of professional musicians of all types, touring musicians, recording artists, songwriters, engineers, bar bands, wedding bands, and anyone making their living in the music industry. Whether you've dreamed of being a professional or you already are one, this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Eric Baines, and I hope that you not only find some entertainment here, but also some helpful tips, trade secrets, and ideas that will help you achieve your dreams. I actually had a gig this weekend and I needed about two days to sleep it off. <laughs> it's pretty amazing how quickly one can get out of shape. Um, it was a private gig in the Hollywood Hills and supposedly everyone at the party had been tested for COVID. Um, but the band was not required to be tested. So I'm not sure if it even mattered <laughs> that the guests were tested. I mean, I didn't like make out with anybody or anything, but, uh, but it was nice to get back on the horse and the gig went well, considering we'd all had time off. You know, I haven't had a gig for six and a half months, which is the longest I've gone without a gig in about 28 years. And, uh, you know, it's been a nice break, but it's also nice that things are slowly getting started again and people are trying to be safe as possible and we can all do what we do because... You know, being a musician is more than just a job, obviously. Most of the time, it's it's who you are. So it's nice to be able to be, be us again on some level. And I've done many, many, many gigs with my guest on the show today, starting around 2002 or so, I think. He's one of LA's top call saxophone players. He's performed on many TV shows, including the Grammys, the BET Awards, the Emmys, Late Night with David Letterman, American Idol, Dancing with the Stars, The Voice... Uh, just to name a few. He's done a ton of movie sessions, like The Longest Ride, Robots, Garfield, The Mask, Zula Patrol, The Frank Sinatra Story, Fortune Hunters, and the most recent Adams Family movie, and many, many others. Uh, he's performed all over the world with artists like Bobby Caldwell, Shaka Khan, Stevie Wonder, Michael McDonald, Boz Skaggs, Frankie Avalon, Keb Moe, Sheena Easton, Melissa Manchester, Johnny Mathis, and he most recently was touring with pop legend Phil Collins, who has been a dream gig of mine for a very long time. He's also participating in a campaign called Real Men Wear Pink, which raises money to fight breast cancer, and I'll put a link in the show notes if you'd like to donate to that. His resume is so vast that I think we barely scraped the surface, but I hope you enjoy my conversation with George Shelby. You are a sax player mainly. Yes. But you play all kinds of wind instruments. Yes. And is that kind of, it feels like that's sort of a requirement of sax players different from other horns. Yeah, it sucks. (laughs) 
<laughs> it means there's a lot to carry to the gig sometimes, like I, right? I would like to meet the first guy, the first sax player who went, yeah, I play clarinet and flute too, and just <laughs> dig his grave up and beat the crap out of a skeleton because it's, it's a huge drag. Yeah. You know, there's just an assumption that if you're a sax player, you play clarinet and flute and, and really clarinets and flutes, mm. alto flute, flute, piccolo, bass clarinet, clarinet, you know, all the saxes baritone tenor alto soprano so right. yeah it you it ends up being kind of a swiss army knife existence <laughs> of what do you need well okay i got that i can do that i haven't touched that for a month but <laughs> right let me pull it out and you know right and you have kind of a i mean you've been playing for years but you still have a pretty serious practice regimen yeah yeah can i mean you... i try to do four hours a day wow. steady Wow. You know, partly because there are a lot of instruments to cover. Mm -hmm. So if I do a half hour to 45 minutes on clarinet and flute, you know, and that that's just the bare minimum of maintenance, you right. know, and then I take an hour. So that'll be about two hours, um, long tone scales. Then I'll take an hour and really focus on something that I'm focused on, you know, a song that I have to learn for an upcoming whatever. And then... If I have any energy, hopefully at the end of the day, I just play. I just put on Spotify or whatever mm -hmm. and just try and go, okay, what would fit with this song? If I was playing with this band, what could I come up with? Right. And just just play and have yeah. fun. I think that's pretty important. It helps you know your instrument too, right? It, just... it helps you know the instrument, but but also we get so caught up especially in Los Angeles, being an industry town that I'm going to work and I'm working and music is work. And we mm. a lot of cats just like forget to have fun with it. Right. Forget to enjoy it. They get so caught up in, and I got to get to the next gig and book the next thing. So yeah, I, you know, I try to still enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's tough. Once you decide to make it your living, just sort of inherently, I think you have to put effort into still digging it hopefully you know? yeah <laughs> sometimes i mean i yeah. don't know sometimes i don't know if you get your dream gig right off the bat then i guess you're golden but sometimes it's work it's yeah <laughs> <laughs> well you know and there's also there's a certain la studio mentality that i have found to be real interesting of guys who are who are very good players who come in and punch the clock and they do their three-hour session and they play the notes correctly, right. and they're never emotionally invested in the project. And the moment, bam, to the minute that three hours are up, they're out the door, and you know, on to the next right. thing. And all my heroes and the players I admired always got emotionally invested in the projects. You know, when, mm -hmm. when Herbie Hancock was doing the Possibilities album, and he called Wayne Shorter in to play an, uh, a solo, he sat with Joni and wouldn't solo until he understood her meaning behind the song and you know what the song meant to her and what she was trying to say and that's when he you know mm -hmm. and you get everyone else who comes in it's like an f7 okay good roll the tape and you know here are my licks and out right you know so yeah. i i think that's one of the drags about la is you get a lot of players that are really great and not emotionally invested at all and that comes across in their playing oftentimes too, maybe. Often, but 
a lot of times you don't need emotional investment. You're just playing <laughs> notes anyway. So right. it's a cat yeah. food jingle. So get in and play it and get out. And Right. You know, right. but yeah, I try, I try, man, if you can't have fun doing this, yeah, you know, you're not digging a ditch. You're not behind the counter. You're not punching a clock. Yeah. I mean, what we get to do is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I bet you guys are appreciating it more now that we can't do it it's been it's been a real interesting time yeah you know because if you're not worried you're not paying attention right to what's going on i mean this is this is a life-defining experience we're going through just like 9-11 was and used to be you could go to the gate and wave your people goodbye and and head back out and and mm -hmm. things change and we don't even think about you know you get to the gate and you take off your shoes and you go through security and do the whole thing that's we're we're in another paradigm shift now going forward i just realized today i'm just going to need to get tested every two weeks mm. you know because just to be proactive and be on top of it. Yeah. Because, you know, just like we all have up-to-date passports because you never know when the last-minute tour was going to come through and, you know, I'm right. up-to-date, I can go, good, let's go. You know, it, it's the same thing now, I think, for being tested. Our sessions are going to come up, and if you can go, I, I got my certificate, I'm cool, mm. I think it's going to be to your advantage. Yeah. It's tougher for horns because you're blowing air, too. It's, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's... Uh, There's a whole spray pattern that has to yeah. be considered. <laughs> yeah. And you especially know. if, you know, horn section, they stand close to each other or they sit close to each other. And Not anymore. Yeah, that's that's going to have to change. It's yeah. going to be a real life before COVID and life after. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So everyone's adjusting. Yeah, for sure. So which, which instrument did you start on? Uh. <laughs> Where did it all start? Uh. <laughs> So my dad started me on a, on accordion. We went to the Milton Mann uh, School Academy of Accordion. Oh, wow. And they gave you the accordion for two months. And like every week or every couple of weeks, you would go into a room for free with like 40 other accordion kids and saw away at, at the book. <laughs> and, you know, at the end of Man. two months that you go in and, and my parents met with whoever was running the school and... And he was like, oh, George is just brilliant on the accordion. And if he buys this $4,000 accordion, it's really going to further his career. Oh, man. And my dad was like, oh, what? <laughs> and he'll do what with that going forward? <laughs> so he he was always a, a big swinger, a fan. So he started me on, on alto sax when I was eight. And I hated it. You know, I just want to be out playing with my friends and doing all that. So he was like, a half hour a day, that's all I want. Oh, uh. You know, and we fought all the time because I had nothing to compare it to. I had, none of my friends played. And uh, right. in sixth grade, which was a few years later, they wanted people to play for an assembly or something. So I went and I played some solo thing on sax and everyone applauded. And, it was, and that was the first dopamine rush of, oh, <laughs> hang on now. Ah. You know, and that that started to light the fire. Had a great junior high teacher that that really pushed me. And by the time I got to college, my dad walked in one day and he said, here's $20. Here's the keys to the car. You've been practicing six hours. Please go away. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, another half hour. I'm working on this Parker thing. So. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah, I was going to ask you about that, too. How's your family feel about your practice schedule? Do you have an isolation booth? Yeah, that... <laughs> I have a room similar to this one. Oh, okay, cool. But, you know, when Linda and I first got married, I literally 
practiced in a closet in the apartment. That was the only space I, you know, so I moved the clothes to the side and I had room for a chair and a music stand. And it was actually under a staircase, so it kind of angled. It was actually a pretty good sounding closet. (laughs) (laughs) And that was it. And, you know, and then I got to a room and, and then when my son Jordan was born, I was practicing in a room and he came in and repatched everything that I had one day. Uh, he played telephone operator. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I went, you know, it's time to have a separate room. <laughs> right. <laughs> build oh, that. Man. Yeah. Wow. Plus, you know, I it, look, you're more apt to work when things are set up and you can just come in, turn it on and go. Right. You know, if you have to set it up and plug it in and turn it on. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's like each step you get farther and farther from doing it. And it like, especially if you're inspired to do something, by the time all the knobs are there and the, like the creativity is just gone. Now you're, right. you're good into that tech head instead of the creative head. You know? Right. Right. Yeah, that's a... So it, it helps for me because I have like all the horns set up at home. So I can go through a, a routine of a schedule of this one, then this one, then the soprano, now the clarinet and the flute, you know, and just grab them and go and not have to yeah. pull it out of the closet and do all that. So yeah, it's real helpful having a space. That's cool. And you've also kind of recently, not really anymore, it's been a photo, but you've added the uh, vocoder to right. your list of, right. of awesome stuff that you do. Well, <laughs> you know, it's funny, I, I was, it's kind of like, Kobe Bryant and those guys who would like, they come back every year and they've added a different shot to that, you know? And so I'm always looking for what can I add? And, and, you know, I played Penny Whistle. uh, Oh, cool. I played when I went on tour with Johnny Halliday, uh, Ray Herman was the sax player and he needed to get off the tour and he called me and I have to get off the tour. Can you take it over? It's, It's rock and roll. It's real easy. It's just you know, tenor sax and, and flute. And I was like, yeah, it's great. And right before you hang, hung up, he was like, oh yeah, and some harmonica too. Okay, bye, click. Like, uh, what? <laughs> Hello? Hey. <laughs> so, you know, I went to the store and I bought a couple of harmonicas and I practiced in the car for a couple of weeks and on the plane to Paris two weeks later and on stage like three days after that, it's rock and roll harmonica. So it's not, if you put a little right. time into it, it's, yeah, yeah you can yeah. get by. <laughs> right. You know, so yeah. I saw someone play okay how can i how can i say this delicately uh i saw someone play vocoder who was a sax player and he's not a great sax player and i went okay if he can play vocoder (laughs) that was kind of inspiring for me to climb into it and figure it out and and it's fun it's another little thing in the arsenal right yeah absolutely and it really adds almost a vocal thing right you know you know because you're 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 singing lines essentially you know you're almost a vocalist now which is like pretty cool yeah it's been and it's it's really helped my playing because it it helps you think as a vocalist then in your phrasing and and things like that so yeah it's been fun that's cool have you gotten calls just for that yet no are you you known around town yet no (laughs) because it's coming it's got to be coming hey man i play vocoder that's great anyway bring clarinet (laughs) (laughs) wow that's interesting i I didn't really realize that clarinet was a part of the of the array because that's hard it's like a different it's a whole different embouchure and yeah am i wrong about that clarinet's a, a little similar to sax um, I play clarinet every day just because when I go to sax, the saxophone feels so fantastic. <laughs> you know, it's kind of lifting yeah. heavy weights and then, you know, you take the weights off and it feels great. The same thing. Uh, the flute armature is 
just a whole nother animal, yeah. you know, so playing that, right. but for sure, you know, and it, it always kind of comes in waves too. Like there'll be a month where it's all clarinet and a month where it's all flute. And I don't know. It's like everyone talks and down goes, okay, it's soprano sax month. Go. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, so. And is there one that's like your voice? <sighs> I mean, either tenor or alto sax. Yeah. You know, but that's kind of depending stylistically on the song and where it's at. Cause I'll go back and forth depending on on once again what the song is saying emotionally and what i'm trying to put onto it but either tenor or alto probably are my main my main axes and beyond chops you've you've obviously worked a lot on your tone and i feel like that's important to you in a way that it should be to everybody <laughs> but a lot of people get lost in the notes and the licks and the you know but that's what's great about having you on any gig is that it's a you bring a lot of soul is that oh, something man. you think people could work on or is that yeah do you have that or you don't <laughs> are there are there, no, are there things that you do to work on that or well you know a million years ago i wasn't happy with my tenor sound and i thought whose sound do i dig more than anyone else and at the time it was really ernie watts i was a big ernie watts fan so yeah. great thing about living in LA is you can just like bug the crap out of anyone in town. And, and I did, <laughs> I called him every day and, and, you know, asked him for lessons and he was like, Oh, okay, come over and, you know, we'll talk about stuff. So I went over and I said, you know, Ernie, I don't know if it's the sax or the, my mouthpiece or my read what's wrong, but I, my sound isn't good. And he's like, give me your horn. And he took my horn and just played the shit out of it for the next 10 minutes just raging bebop and he was on tour with the stones at the time so screaming rock and roll and this fluffy subtone and just ran the gamut and my mouth is just on the floor and he plays and plays and plays and plays and finally stops and he looks at me and he looks at the horn and he looks at me and he looks at the horn and he looks at me and he says it ain't the horn <laughs> ouch okay <laughs> thanks ernie see you next week <laughs> so yeah, tone's really important to me. Sound is really important. And I work on it. You know, I'm doing a half hour of long tones almost every day. And what does that mean exactly? <clears throat> it means I'm playing one note for one minute. Wow. And then I go an octave up for one minute. And then the octave below for one minute. So it's a B flat, middle B flat for a minute. High B flat, low B flat, one minute each. And then B. You know, and there's... There's something, you get into this really kind of zen place and you think you're warmed up and you think you're sounding good and you, you think you're there, but all of a sudden about 20 minutes into it, my body just shifts. It's like, oh, there it is. Okay, good. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, every player I ever admired had a great sound and an, an identifiable sound. Right. And I think that's probably one of the, biggest problems with universities at this point is they they found a way to monetize music education in that they have hyper analyzed notes and style and rhythms and you know you will come out of college being able to orchestrate a gregorian chant and not know like what a gregorian chant even means or the emotional content behind it right there's no emotional content being taught 
There's right. not, you know, emotions 202, <laughs> you know. You went to Berkeley, right? Yeah, for a little bit. Was, was there any emotional content that was being taught? No. Right? Not really. It, it's all about... And I was even a songwriting major for a little bit, which we would think that would be all about. Right. Sort of co- trying to convey an emotional idea, but it was more about rhyming schemes and, and right. rhythms and, and very technical right. stuff. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. They have it broken down technically to a science. Yeah. You know, and, and they miss the whole, the whole point of music, which is to convey a feeling to your audience. Right. To convey an emotion. So everyone comes out of university exactly half prepared because mm-hmm. they have the chops, they have you know the sound, they have the technical ability and no emotional content. Unless they've stumbled onto it somehow. Right. You know, if they've gone through a horrific breakup or something in college and wrote a great song (laughs) because of that, you know. Right. But it's not a part of study. It's not a part of of music education. And it's it's the main reason we're playing music. Yeah. Yeah, I I was thinking that. It's like they separate the how from the why. Right. You know? Right. I, I totally get that. And I think that's why I... I, I altogether I had like two and a half hour uh two and a half hours two and a half <laughs> years of college between <clears throat> Berkeley and I went to college for a while in Denver when I got back there but I think that's the reason I struggled a little because I mm-hmm. sort of come from the emotional side of music right you know it's so to separate that out which is sort of in a way important because it, it reminds me of like reading like I'm it took me a long time to be a decent reader too because I wanted to make music and I right. sort of have to focus just on the notes to get rid of all the emotion because I get all distracted and you know right. I don't right. like, I can't keep my eyes on the page sometimes especially when you know a song kind of and you're trying to read it and maybe it's a different arrangement you know right um but uh so to come to music without emotion and to finally get there if if that was part of the process of college then that would probably be easier does that make any sense i think yeah people would be a lot further ahead yeah you know so it and that look i think the question for a lot of for a lot of musicians is are you going to be a musician or are you going to be an artist yeah you know because there are guys who play without emotion and they play incredibly clever stuff and very technical and they have really good careers playing mm-hmm. all kinds of different you know tv stuff and movie stuff and they're not an artist you know they're they're covering a lot of different territory as an artist your only question is what's my voice and what am i trying to say mm. and that's all you're working on right you know so right. it's really difficult to be both Mm-hmm. You know, some guys have done it. Tom Scott has done it. Michael Brecker did. It. I mean, I'm thinking sax players because that's right. my that's my universe. Right. Um, but it it's hard to do both of them, and it's I think you you ignore and and that's not to say if you're all emotion and no chops that's no good either. Right. You know. You, right. You can't play out of tune and out of time and go. Well, you know, I'm just really feeling emotional. <laughs> that, that doesn't work either. It's I'm like, just playing what I feel, man. Right, right. Out of tune and out of time is horrible. Right. <laughs> it's not. It's not hireable. Right. You know. <laughs> right. So they're both really important, yeah. but the emotional content just gets somehow ignored in a lot of education, which is great for me because it keeps me working. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. You know, exactly. for job every, security. For every jazzer who comes out and, and you know, they're just ready to take over with right. their their, you know, sheets of scales and, and licks and all. It's great, but you know, if they need an eight bar solo to be concise and, and convey emotion, there a lot of people get lost in that moment. Yeah. So you grew up in Los Angeles. Yeah. Born and raised. That's cool. Did you... Uh... It was cool, except as a musician, I never got to be the new guy in town. Interesting. Right? Like every yeah. year there'd be a new crop of guys who would come out who would always get checked out because like, oh, the new guy, the new, you know, right. the flavor of the month would be, you know, right. the new cats coming in. And I never got to be that because I was just here. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So there'd always be, a, you know, the guys from North Texas who would come out or Eastman or Berkeley or you know, just from an area like, you know, the Houston sax players, uh, right. Everett yeah. Harp and Kirk Whalum and all those guys who had a certain sound mm -hmm. coming out of there, right. you know, was cool when they would hit town because they would get that initial kind of, oh, new guy in town, let's check him out. Yeah. And I was just always here. So. <laughs> oh yeah, George. Okay. Whatever. Uh, that's interesting. <laughs> well, I had a conversation with, I can't remember who it was. It was years and years ago when I first came here and he was like, well, sometimes it's cool to be the out of town guy because you've done all your sucking somewhere else. Right. And by the time you get here, you're a little more prepared. You know, there's right. always a catch up, I think, because right. LA is, unless you came from New York maybe, but LA right. is like an intense place. You, you know, it's hard to show up here burning like everyone else. But uh, I asked Jerry Vivino when sax player for the Conan show, mm -hmm. when he moved out, I was like, all right, what's the difference between New York and LA? He's like, in New York, you have players that are just as good as they are here in LA. But in LA, you can go 20 deep in a chair. Yeah. And the 20th guy is still killing it, <laughs> you know, and you yeah. don't quite have that depth he felt in New York. Interesting. You know? Yeah. I, I don't feel like you probably did a lot of sucking, but like, you know, Dude, <laughs> but it, it is the kind of town though, if you show up on a gig and you, you don't kill it, you can get a reputation pretty quick. You know, if you're a young guy, obviously there's, well, he's, well, he's still coming up. But. Back, back in my day, <laughs> back in the old day. I mean, the, the cool thing about growing up in the San Fernando Valley when I was here and Carson was in charge of the tonight show and they had the tonight show band. So, Pete Chrisley lived out here and, you know, the whole band mm. was in the neighborhood. Wow. And being a professional musician wasn't some weird esoteric concept. It's right. what everyone did. Right. You know, Detroit, they make cars and in Pittsburgh, they pull steel and, and here we make music. Yeah. You know, in TV and film, it, it's, it's an industry town. Mm -hmm. So I grew up going, okay, this is what it takes to be professional and this is what's expected and these are the marks you have to hit. You know, when I was in school, Dave Cause was in school at the same time, and uh, um, Matt Kattengu was in school at the same time, Ted Nash was in school, you know, all these amazing sax players who have all gone different ways. You know, Matt became the director of the Honolulu Symphony, and Dave Cause, of course, with his solo career, and mm -hmm. Ted Nash plays in the uh, Kennedy Center Jazz Orchestra. So you grew up out here, and it was like, oh, music is a profession, mm -hmm. you know. Right. It, it, when I traveled and people would be like, what do you do? I'm a musician. They'd be like, well, what do you do during the week? <laughs> no, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's when I realized for other people, it was a really strange concept to be a musician. So the advantage to growing mm -hmm. up here was you just saw it as a profession and, and attacked it as such. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I came out here. I, 
I came out to visit and I was like, guys that I that do what I do in Denver have houses and nice cars and families, you know, <laughs> and like <laughs> they, they get paid real money, you know, like, like I, I need to be here, you know? Right. That's pretty cool. Right. So, but it, it's, it's weird for me. I, it's hard for me to relate because I grew up in Broomfield, Colorado, like beautiful place, but right. small and in the middle of the country. And, and my whole goal was just to get out of Broomfield, Colorado. And, and the idea of living your whole life in your town is an odd concept to me. You know, right. did you ever want to like leave LA just for the sake of being somewhere else? Or, or has yeah, this just I, 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 been a great place the whole time? And Yeah, it's been a great place, except it sucks half the time. <laughs> you know, I, I, I mean, we Linda and I talk about if we were going to move, you know, well, it's a great concept, but where? And what's going to check all the boxes right. that LA checks? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, where else are you going to get earthquakes and fires and... <laughs> Traffic. Traffic. <laughs> really expensive parking tickets. Yeah. So, you know, move? That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, you know, musically. And, and once again, back, we were talking about sucking on gigs. And back in the day, you could suck on a gig. And the 13 people at that gig would go, wow, that guy sucked. You know, now... They're live streaming the show yeah. as it's happening. Yeah. And everyone sees the show immediately. Right. <laughs> you know, wherever you are. So yeah. th there's a lot, I think there's a lot more pressure on young musicians now with having their stuff out there immediately. They don't get to be in some small club and, and suck or experiment or try stuff. And th yeah. that, you know, that's the other thing, the other reason why it's important for me still to just play music at the end of the day and just have fun with it is that's the time I get to experiment because you can't really experiment anymore when you're out on a gig. Yeah. Yeah. That's changed a lot. Yeah. And plus like sometimes, you know, we all have those weeks where we've got to take a gig that maybe I don't want people knowing that I'm playing this gig or maybe I don't want people to see me on this particular band, but you know, it, it pays money, and and here I am. And now it's, it's it can be right up there on the internet and forever. Right. You know? It's so funny you should say that because in March, I was booked to play with a singer who's not a fantastic singer, <laughs> and everything was just starting to close down because of COVID. So gigs were dropping off, and and her gig was like the only one that was still booked. And I was like, oh Lord, please. <laughs> If that gig doesn't cancel, then everyone's going to come to this gig because it's the only one happening. <laughs> and then thankfully it canceled them. Oh, thank uh, the Lord. <laughs> man, I hear you. It's a drag. <laughs> you got to choose your gigs wisely. <laughs> yeah, you kind of do. Yeah. So then you, I read in your bio that then you moved to Hollywood. Right. And did that, so you grew up in the Valley? Grew up in the Valley, moved to Hollywood. And mainly because back then, the first person, saxophone especially, was like an, a last-minute addition for most jingles or whatever. Mm. This is not working. Let's add sax. Who can we get? And which meant who can get here the fastest? Right. You know, so Hollywood back in the day was a great advantage because I was on Gower above Beechwood. So I was right down the street, mm. you know, yeah. to most of the studios, and I could get there quickly. So that worked for a long time. Yeah. You know, and now... Now it's just the complete opposite because with home recording, 
no one has to be anywhere. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Everyone can just send you tracks and you can lay it down and send it back out. So, but back in the day, being in Hollywood was important because you you had to get to the, you had to be available to get to the session quickly. Yeah. If it, especially being a young guy coming up. Right. All the established guys were always going to get the calls and the first calls, but, you know, last minute additions, if you were there and could get down quick, you, you might get a foot in the door. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that worked out. And then uh, I blew back out to the valley again. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 when I first moved here, I lived in Pasadena because mm-hmm. my only friend out here is like, yeah, I live in Pasadena. It's great. And it, it is kind of cool. It's outside of town a little bit, you know, traffic wise. I mean, this was 20 years ago. So traffic wasn't quite right. as bad. It was still horrible. But, and then they raised the rent like ridiculous. So we were like, okay, we got to move. Let's so I went to North Hollywood. We found this awesome apartment, affordable, two bedroom, two bath, you know. And and then all of a sudden, I'm like, all my neighbors are all these guys that I had been working with, you know, in the two and a half years that I had lived in Pasadena. I'm like, oh, I finally, oh, this is where I'm supposed to live, right? Oh, the valley is where the musicians are supposed to live, you know, like right. this is where you get more for your money, and like everyone right. lives here, and the rehearsal spaces are here, and, and right. So, uh, yeah, I, I love the valley, honestly. And and now with with the recording too, the home recording again, it's like the advantage is like anyone in the world can get a hold of you, and you can lay tracks for anyone in the world. So I'm doing my room is set up. I can do horn sections at my house. Yeah, and I've done That's them for great. Korean artists and Japanese artists and and you know all over the world. The disadvantage to that is now everyone in town can reach out all over the world to other musicians. Yeah. So, you know, I was talking earlier, like I played penny whistle. So if they need a quick little penny whistle fill, okay, cool. I can do that. Now they literally call the bar in Dublin and it's like, Hey, who's your penny whistle player? Wow. (laughs) And whoever it is has a home recording studio in Dublin and he plays the crap out of the penny whistle. (laughs) And has since he was six years old. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And lays the solo and sends it back. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So what uh, what kind of recording setup are you like a Pro Tools Pro Tools guy? Or? No, I'm Logic. Logic, cool. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm an Apple guy, and mm-hmm. and it was set up, and and I think the architecture for that Apple uses with Logic is it's a really good sounding program. Yeah. And most of the stuff that I'm doing is I'm laying my tracks, be it be it solo sax or sax or section horn section, mm-hmm. and I'm sending it out, and they're mixing somewhere else. Right. So all I'm trying to do is get it recorded hot and clean. Mm-hmm. That's it. No tricks. No, I don't compress anything I'm recording. It's just here's here's the bare knuckled signal. Do with it what you will. Right. Have your way with it. And do you go through a preamp? I I used to. Uh-huh. I, I have the Brett Averill Neve preamps. I have four oh, channels yeah, of that. Brand, yeah. Great. But I've got the latest Focusrite converters. Mm. And I AB'd, and and honestly, the latest Focusrite converters sound great by themselves, oh, and a cool. little airier and better than using the preamps. Mm. So right now, I'm not using the preamps, and you know I've AB'd back and forth, and and the technology has gotten pretty ridiculous at this point. Yeah, you know, so yeah. I just go straight into the you know into the converter and into the computer, and off we go. That's awesome. I mean, it's a lot cheaper too. <laughs> it is. You Especially know. those, you know, bread out. If you're trying to cover multiple channels, that gets pretty expensive. Oh, 
you know, like Russ Miller has his, I, he calls it a home studio, but it's, it's a ridiculous setup. Yeah. And he records 14 tracks of drums, mm. you know, mm-hmm. two overheads and then two overheads further back in the room and over the snare and under the snare and hat and, and you know. Right. And I was in casual conversation with a guy who had an eight pack of Neve preamps he was selling. And I called Russ and he's like, I'm on my way. And mm. <laughs> gave the guy cash for it, you know, trying to put what he, so I, you know, for yeah. me, it's just, I need four clean channels. Right. Because I'll do up to a four horn section and can stack and double and do whatever. Anything else go somewhere else. Mm. You know, but <laughs> but what I tell clients is I have the same quality that they have at Capitol Records. I have the, the same computers, the same preamps, the same mic selection. You know, the difference is I have four channels and Capitol has 128. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. So if you need yeah. more than four, then go somewhere else. Right. But yeah. I'll cover you with the highest quality out there, mm-hmm. you know, for what I do. Right. I'll keep that in mind. I'll put you on the list. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. <laughs> Anytime you're going to afford to not use a computer sound, you know, a sample. I don't know. Uh, well, that, you know, for, for horn players, that has been an interesting educational aspect is showing producers and writers what's possible with the horn section because all the there are a lot of guys who are doing big music projects and aren't particularly musically educated yeah and all they know from horns is whatever the sample pack in their computer plays right you know so all they know is that horns can stab in unison <laughs> pow, 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 pow. right that's all it, right. you know so i find that that like half of our session these days are going well we can you know we can crescendo into a note we can decrescendo out of the note we can fall off it we can scoop up into it we, you know there's all these options let let alone the arranging of harmony and things like that right but there's a lot of there's a lot of educating that's going on these days for producers and you know most guys are cool and and open to it because they don't know and they want to know what's right. possible yeah so you know, but it used to be you'd go in and like, here are the horn parts and play exactly what I have written because this is exactly what I want. Yeah. You know, I've done films now where as a horn section, we've gone in and they've had no music on the stands. Wow. And they're like, well, play something here and play something here. Wow. <laughs> well, that's interesting because earlier when we were talking about emotion versus, you know, a lot of times the job of the horn player is just that here, read the chart and get it right. Right. And everything's on there. You don't have to, you don't have to be emotional, you know, just, just uh-huh. do what I tell you to do. And I was going to bring up that it's, it feels different for a guitar player. Cause a lot of times, or a bass player, even or a lot of times it's like, well, here's the chord chart. Let's right. come up with a baseline. Right. You know, it's not as notated, but horns, you, for one, you've usually got three, four, five, six people. So right. you got to be a little more organized. Right. But uh, apparently that's changing. So that that's interesting. I wonder what the, that will do to upcoming horn players in general, if that's what you're expected to go into now. Now you're going to be a person that needs to provide music as well as, right. you know, the instrument. What, what, what I precision. found is that horn sections these days, I find guys are coming up as sections that are much quicker at coming up with parts as a section. Mm. Like young kids now are really good at 
between them that's like, oh, we can play this, this, and this on the song. Bam. You know, so there's this new skill set that's coming up for young horn sections mm-hmm. in giving a producer, you know, because they go in, the producer has a loop and a bass line and play something on this. Right. You know. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's that's good probably. As long as you still have all the education and skills well, to do the other, I guess. Yeah. The, the problem or is- Or is that, it two different things? I don't know. Well, you're you're cutting like, okay, you're not paying for an arranger. You're not right. paying for a copyist. <laughs> yes. Right. For, yeah. You know, there's a whole chain of people that used to be involved in that process oh, yeah. that are n- that's not there. And so, yeah. and you're not, the horn section is not getting paid any more money. Mm-hmm. We're not getting arranger's fee or copying fee, but it's kind of the new paradigm. That's where we are now. Yeah. So dig in or get out. Right. I know. I mean, it's not much different for bass. Most guitar players can do it. A lot of keyboard players can do it. You know, don't need me. (laughs) (laughs) I'll send you tracks. I'll give you a deal. That's good. I got a bass. Right. I can do it. Right. And, And not to mention a lot of the music, especially pop music, doesn't require bass anymore. And, uh, and if it does, it's pretty simple stuff. We're not right. in, a, in an era of, you know, Chicago and, and Led Zeppelin or anything that requires like, not that those were session guys, but, um, but, but I think, I think it's coming back around. Honestly, I hope so. The, the latest stuff like, you know, Jacob Collier and, and right. you know, guys like that are starting to put out some really complex pop songs so I yeah. think, you know, I think it really, the pendulum swings back and forth. And, and I think it's coming back where I hear a lot of kind of Toto influenced, very cool, you know, sort of stuff. So I, I hope it's, it's going back that way. Me too. Yeah. Because I was thinking as I was kind of listening to you all day and, and, and sorry. researching. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I was just thinking about how when I was, you know, I was pretty much grew up in the 80s and. 90s like in the 80s there was a a singable sax solo right on pretty much every pop tune right and then by the time you get sort of to the 90s <clears throat> it's not there it's moves right. now if you if you hear sax that's jazz right you know and now right. it doesn't even now if there's a sax in a in a dance tune or something it's a sample of some james brown thing that right happens in a weird way that's barely right. even musical yeah and, I would I would like to thank composers in the 80s for screwing sax players over. Oh, interesting. Well, they got lazy. You know, they would mm. compose, you know, okay, here you have this movie. And so you're composing and you're writing and you're arranging for this. And here's a car chase and, and here's a love scene, sax solo. Mm. And they just got lazy. And that became their go-to move. Right. You know, the moment the lips are headed towards each other, cue the sax solo, you know, and everyone got burnt on that. Right. Until it got to the point of like, okay, we don't want to hear sax solo ever again right. in that, you know. So it really just like pushed the whole thing out. Right. You know, and in, unless they want specifically like Kenny G kind of thing or, you know, uh, I get called for a New York sounding, you know, bebop solo, jazz solo, something like that. Right. You know, very stylistically specific. But yeah, everyone got really burnt on. That's interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah, it sucks. It was like, uh, what do they call it? Like typecasting. Right. Sax is only for love songs now. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Well, and you've probably felt that over the years as far as business. I don't know. Oh, sure. 
And, you know, and like I talk about the pendulum going back and forth. So when Kenny G was really popular and hitting it, then suddenly everyone wanted soprano sax on everything. And right. we rode that. And, you know, and then when Brian Setzer was hitting real big, suddenly Jump Swing was was in and, and horn sections came back and we wanted Jump Swing and, and stuff like that. So, you know, yeah. depending on where the zeitgeist is and what's popular, people will jump on that. And there's a lot of, of trickle down work that will come because of that. Right. You know, so that's why mm -hmm. when people were bagging on Kenny G and, oh, Kenny G sucks, I'm like, dude, first uh, of all, he's a great player. And if you think he sucks, you've never really listened to him. Right. You've never heard him live. But second of all, as a professional sax player, the trickle down work I got from Kenny sustained me for like a decade. Right. You know, yeah. I got no problem with a famous sax player. <laughs> <laughs> right. We were playing for a couple of years together in a, in a band, a yes, sir. casual band, a wedding mm -hmm. band. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I remember coming up to you one day and being like, dude, I think, I think I'm up for this really good gig. I can't, I'm not really telling anybody, but I think I might, I might get this Dwight Yoakam gig to which you replied, okay, dude, don't tell anybody, but I think I got this Phil Collins gig. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, why do you always have to one up? <laughs> Not that I don't love playing with Dwight Yoakam, but Bill uh, Collins is like the guy that I always used as the dream gig with, with, you know, like if I miss a phone call, I'm like, oh man, what if it was Phil Collins? Like since like <laughs> I was 18, you know what I mean? Um, so you uh, got the gig and, and yeah. um, you, you, I mean, he's, he's he's not touring it well no one's touring right now but right he did we did three years of the not dead yet tour oh very cool and uh harry kim called me and he said gerald albright has decided not to go back out on tour as phil sax player and oh. would you like to do it and after i stopped sobbing i was like, <laughs> <laughs> yes please <laughs> you know and that was that was in december and Rehearsals weren't going to start until April, but the next day I was at his house saying, give me the music. Oh, uh, we've got months. Yeah, great. Give me the music. <laughs> and I followed him around his house and made him <laughs> gather all the music <laughs> and give it to me. Um, for a horn player, it's a dream gig. Yeah. Um, you know, the parts that Harry had, has written and arranged for Phil and, and other guys, Tom Tom. And, and Harry Kim's fabulous trumpet player fabulous trumpet like player one of the top dudes in la yeah and the leader of the vine street horns mm. which has been phil's horn section for for 35 years wow um so i got the parts from harry because they're they're very harry as a trumpet player writes very explosive exciting horn parts and as a sax player i had to get my tonguing and phrasing <laughs> up to speed yeah. so i shed that uh for a couple months on my own then we did 10 rehearsals as a horn section before we had the first band rehearsal. Wow. So, you know, cause Harry wanted Jeez. to go in spanking. Yeah. You know, note perfect. You know, anyone who thinks you're going to go into a rehearsal and learn the music there, you are sadly mistaken. Right. You know, you, you get to rehearsal They're They're worried about staging and lighting and, and a million other things having nothing to do with the music. Right. The, the music's a foregone conclusion that you'll know when you step in there the first day. Mm. So we did. We did 10 rehearsals as a section and then flew to Miami and started rehearsals. And, and it was just, I, I hesitate to talk about how great the gig was <laughs> because it's just, 
phenomenal. And I just sa- would sound like a complete dirtbag to talk about. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's something you wish that every musician who spent hours and hours and years and years working on their craft could get that kind of an opportunity to be part of that organization that everyone, everyone in that organization, whether it was lights or sound or production or catering, whoever it was, wardrobe, they took such pride in what they did and wanted just to kill their gig. Right. I remember um, the first week of rehearsals, I ran into Leland Sklar, who was playing bass on the gig and had been for 35 years. And uh, it was about the third day of rehearsal and we were done for the day. And and I said, you know, hey, what are you doing tonight? I mean, we'll go out and grab some dinner. And he's like, oh, I'm staying in and I'm shedding my parts all night because we've changed keys on a couple things and I'm not comfortable with it. I'm like, oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wow. everyone just took such pride musically in the gig and in what they were doing. And Phil was just fantastic to work for. Yeah. Just great. And him being a extremely skilled musician i mean he was he involved a lot or did he just sort does he is there a musical director who kind of runs it and yeah, brad cole is is the musical director but phil is the musical director yeah, okay <laughs> you know you. so brad is facilitating what's going on in rehearsal and let's go over this part and let's check this out but phil hears everything and mm-hmm. phil is one of the few guys I've run into, maybe the only guy who has perfect time, Mm. which I'd never experienced before. But if he wanted something at 100 beats per minute and it was 101, he knew it and felt it. Interesting. Because when he was singing, his phrasing was off and and his son, Nicholas, was playing drums, Mm -hmm. did a fantastic job, but started rehearsals at 16. (laughs) And yeah, ridiculous. (laughs) Wow. You, you know, and, and came in knowing all the parts and having everything nailed. So, but Phil was, as long as you were giving Phil what he needed and what it should be, it's great. Yeah. No problems. And, mm-hmm. and most artists have been like that, that I worked for. Right. And people don't realize the pressure that they're under. Yeah. You know, because if something is wrong with anything in the production, lights, sound, music, they blame the artist. It's right. the artist's fault. Well, that her show sucked. Right. Exactly. You know? Yeah. So Phil was great. I I had a couple solos in the show and he really didn't say anything for the first week of rehearsals. And after about a week, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I walked up to him and I was like, Phil, just want to know if you want me to play anything different, do anything different, you know, let me know. And just want to get your general take on what I'm playing. And he looked at me and said, I've hated everything you've done so far. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to get along just fine. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. But, you know, it was it, just one piece of ridiculousness on this gig is uh, we were doing One More Night, which is a big sax feature at, at the end of the song. And we rehearsed it uh, in Miami. Then we flew to London where they actually had the stage set up in the big sound stage. And it was our first time seeing all the lights and, and everything. And course you walked in there and teared up just at the beauty and majesty of it all but we're 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 getting ready to rehearse one more night and the, and the stage manager said okay there's a little x on the floor he's like okay on your solo hit that x on your first note like, okay great 
So they're doing one more night, and then I casually stroll out, and I hit my axe. And as my solo's about to start, seven spotlights <laughs> all hit me on that axe. And I just started laughing. It was the most ridiculous, sublime moment. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's what this gig is. <laughs> you know, and once again, the lighting guys were like jazzed that they could make something like that happen. Right. And they were like, yeah, watch, we swirl the lights here and then bam, we hit it at this point. And wow. crazy, great guys, but phenomenal gig. He was beautiful and I'm so sad it's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think it's gone permanently or? Well, it, it, he's going back out with Genesis. Genesis, that's what I thought. Yeah. yeah, he's doing Genesis again, which has been which has been his whole life has bounced back and forth between his solo gig and Genesis. Right. So every time he's done a solo gig, he's followed it with, with Genesis and back and forth. Mm -hmm. So Genesis for the, and you know, we ran for three years. So you can conceivably see Genesis going for, for three years. Right. Would he do anything after that? Yeah. I sure as hell hope so. Yeah. But who knows? We'll yeah. see. So what horns did you play? Did you have more than one? Or It was all, it was 90% alto. Wow. It was all alto sax. That's cool. And one, I think one song on tenor and that was it. Yeah. And did, uh, it, it's, it was memorized. Like yes. It was not a reading gig. No. And is that something that you do a lot is that comfortable is because I, I know you're suck you're like a phenomenal reader thank you <laughs> i suck at memorizing stuff oh interesting and uh not so much now <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah it was a trial by fire and 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 that was one of and that was another reason why i bothered harry in december for a gig that was rehearsing in april right because i knew i was going to need that time to mm -hmm. internalize parts right and uh you know, there's a uh, couple of songs that have tremendous horn openings and, and I shed and got down and memorized and perfect. And we went into rehearsal and feels like, it's too high. Let's drop that a half step. And you're like, no. <laughs> Can't you just move your capo down? <laughs> <laughs> just transpose the keyboard. <laughs> right. Right. You know, the same, and the same thing happened at the Grammys when we were doing a, we were doing the a tribute to Lionel Richie. Mm -hmm. And so they were doing a, a big, star cavalcade where everyone came in and, and sang a Lionel Richie song. Then he comes up and sings all night long for the last song. So we're up there rehearsing as a section and we're just jazzed to play all night long because another iconic horn line. Right. So he gets up there and we're just sticking it. And, you know, just all yeah. proud of ourselves. And we get done and Lionel's like, you know, my voice is a little tired today. Can we, can we lower that a half step? Oh. And they count off the song. <laughs> uh. And the horn section went. <laughs> 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 
Mumbo, mumbo, mumbo. <laughs> but yeah, wow. mem- memorizing is not one of my strongest suits. So it's something I have to really put time in on, just repetition and a section at a time. Yeah. You know, as a bass player, I have a guitar tech. Mm-hmm. And like, how does the tech thing work for a horn player? Do you have a tech? Does someone handle your horns or is that always well i guess with only two horns on the gig it's not right involved but i had i had a tech when i was on tour with johnny halliday and i would go from tenor to harmonica i would have a tech kind of hand off different instruments and microphones to me Mm. because i had a bullet mic of course for the harmonica and then a clip on for the sax and right so they helped me with that but otherwise now you're pretty much on your own (laughs) 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 and you know the end of phil gigs we would, a lot of these stadium gigs, we would do runners out the back, you know, hit the last note, bam, into the van and out. Right. So we had this kind of choreographed dance we did as a horn section. When we would get off stage, we had our case, our flight case, and we would all pack our stuff up and get it in the case and shut and locked and ready to go clear, you know, before the last song was done because it was kind of on us to do that. Yeah. So we got really good at, you know, the Swiss army of like, you get this and you lift that shelf and then we'll put that in first. And and then it's pitch black. I can't see flashlight, flashlight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah, I understand. We also have wardrobe too. I don't know if you guys. So it was was always like, get out of your clothes as fast as you can and get in the van. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, we, we actually would wear our clothes. If it was a runner, we would just wear them back to the hotel Yeah, and they would pick them all up at the hotel. Yeah. Yeah. That's but, awesome. Yeah. It was so good. Runners are great. <laughs> Once this COVID thing's over, I'm going to hire one just for the house. Just run, just have a runner around all the time. Uh, and it was a, he has a pretty large catalog. Was the set list pretty locked in or? Very locked in. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. So it was a show. Yeah. Cool. And, you know, a lot of that had to do with lighting and, and right. cues and staging and, and, everything that they had going on. There were a couple of songs that he would flip-flop in the middle of the show, could be one or the other, but everything else was locked in. Yeah. And he would generally change a couple of songs from leg to leg. So when we do the Europe leg and then go, say, do Australia, New Zealand, he would change up a couple of songs, mm-hmm. but basically it was pretty locked. Yeah. And I was I watched something on YouTube, but I don't know if it was the beginning of the show, but did he open with Against All Odds? Yeah. I just thought that was so cool to open with a ballad. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, he, yeah. he's, he's a hero. So I'm. Yeah, the I stage, the stage would go night. dark and he would just walk out and sit down, it's... cue the piano, and start singing. Oh, <laughs> it was so cool. It was such a baller move. And you're playing stadiums. Yeah. Or arenas and. Yeah. Just cool. Yeah. That's yeah. so awesome. And there'd be a scrim up in front of the band on that song. So you would just be him, mm. you know, on this, like a single spotlight for that song. Yeah. And then the scrim would drop for the second song and then the horns would come out for the third song. And it was really, yeah. you know, he had, as a kid, he was, he was doing shows, uh, theater. I don't, I was going to say Broadway, but it's not Broadway in London, whatever the London right. equivalent is right he was in oliver as a kid and and he has a very good theatrical mind for mm. putting together a show and you know what needs to hit where and and the overall arch of the show putting it together musically 
Uh, yeah, that's cool. Great at that. Yeah, I saw him live in '94 or five, mm-hmm. and uh, just blew my mind. He ended with um, "Take Me Home." Mm-hmm. I don't know if he still does that. I always, but he had this massive set. Right. And 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 it was around the time. In fact, I bought the rehearsal. He had a video that you pay. He was big into the uh, homeless, you know, and like mm-hmm. he had a big charity. Uh, thing for the homeless so i bought the video to support and it's a whole video of documentary of his rehearsal leading up to the tour really interesting really cool nathan east on it and the cool thing was this massive set huge lit up as the song is vamping out each member of the band leaves Leave. so it's just him right and part of the set is this shack because it's like a homeless part of the set you know right and he wanders up to the shack and eventually leaves out the door and on the last note and then he just sticks his arm back out and pulls the porch light, and the whole set goes down. Oh, oh no! Nice. It was so cool because the thing is still completely lit, you know. Right. And it was an outdoor shed, you know, big, right. big thing. Right. And uh, I just, I just love that stuff. But that shows that he's, comes, yeah. you know, he's got a theatrical kind of thing. Yeah, it's a flair for that. At at the same time, he, you know, it was explained to us. It's like, it, it's a show, and I want it, I want there to be great energy and and put it out there, but I don't want it to be like a Vegas lounge act. Mm-hmm. He was also sensitive to it being too kitschy or too cute or too, you know. Right. So, right. you know, there was always this balance you're trying to strike between, let's go out and have fun, but let's not be idiots. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. And as a horn section, like how much of the show did you play? Because not every song, that's yeah. the only thing I'm always envious of. Right. Of certain players, not just horn players, but sure. as a bass player, I'm pretty much out for every song. The whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He would do 30 songs and we would play on 12 of them. Okay, cool. So almost half. And as a sort of inherently lazy person, that that seems very attractive to me too. Yeah. but Did you find yourself wanting to be out there more? All the time. Yeah. All the well, especially if the band is great and you're having fun and it's awesome. Right. Like you don't want to be sitting around. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, texting people. What are you doing? Oh, I'm just backstage. <laughs> oh, hey, hang on. We have to go on. Right. Okay, that went well. I'll be back in three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it sounded, uh, what I heard on, uh, I didn't, didn't get to see it live, obviously, but man, the horns are just smoking. Thanks. So great. Thanks. It was, it was incredibly fun. And Michelle, the front of house mixer, mixed the horns really hot. Yeah, in the house. I mean, it's it's a horns, it's Phil horns and the rest of the band. You yeah, know? yeah, uh, and and um, his kid. Yeah, that would make sense. Too. And Nicholas. His kid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that was you know that was the way Harry Harry wrote parts and Phil wanted parts to make a statement. It's yeah. like not background stuff, right? You know, Harry and I we we've seen we were in Paris and someone invited us to a a very famous singer show and the show was phenomenal incredible show i'll tell you who it was off air but okay. the horn <laughs> parts were just oh, so boring uh, you know whole notes and you just felt so bad for the guys because they had nothing to play all night right. you know and phil's book is not that way right but it also oh, brought that added dimension of pressure and that you'd listen to playback and you're like oh damn not only can I hear the horns, I hear the sax very clearly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, okay, let's yeah. get on point here. Yeah. You know, and there was points, we talked about memorizing the show. So Luis Bonilla was the trombone player and it was 
both his and I first tour with Phil. And Harry Kim and Dan Fernero have toured with Phil forever. So they know the show, they have the parts, they play phenomenal. But we would be getting kind of visual cues from from Harry and Dan when they're picking up the horns, like, oh, okay, we play now. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then probably three months into it, when they knew that we had the show memorized, then they started to screw with us. And they would start picking the horns up and just just seeing if we would take the bait. <laughs> and if you, you know, if you were out in the field with butterflies and daisies and not paying attention, I'll say right. you pick up the horn, bap, oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man well at least it's just a stadium full of people yeah no pressure <laughs> <laughs> do you enjoy the travel i know, I know you're pretty that you're a studio travel? guy and a touring guy yeah well you know i mean yeah i mean do you enjoy the road how about that um yeah <laughs> you know I, I think everyone has that same answer there there are aspects about it that are incredible and there are things about it that just suck yeah. And, you know, and for me, I'm out there to do a job. So I know some guys hit a new town and go exploring immediately, mm-hmm. head right for the museum or the town center or the nightclub or whatever they do. Right. I'm getting a bowl of spaghetti. I'm in my room. I'm watching Netflix and that's it. Uh, I got a show to do tomorrow. Gotcha. Don't bug me. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Right. I mean, I really pace myself on the road. Um, but. Yeah, I mean the the energy of being on the road and and getting that on on just about any gig is is so great that I yeah. enjoy that aspect of it. I enjoy the team aspect of of everyone working together. Yeah, you know, you go into that stadium at, at six in the morning and it's just a bare floor. There's nothing there, and the thing that they create is incredible. You know, yeah. as a team. So being part of that team was is really special. Um, so yeah, I enjoy that. And and now it's it's kind of fun because I've kind of been to enough places often enough where I have friends in different places. It's nice to get back and see them and yeah, touch base again or do you know, go do clinics again, you know, in London or Germany or Austria and, and you know, see those yeah. people again and, and guys who were at my clinics years ago are now working professionals and you know yeah it's fun it's fun to see yeah and how many shows a week does he do i know vocalists it's usually yeah spread out he was like if i'm going out we're gonna work Mm. so it would use i mean the crew got killed god bless them (laughs) (laughs) really got hammered but we would usually do two on one off Mm. steady throughout the whole run yeah you know, wow. so no weekends. Wow. No. Yeah. No, you know, Johnny Holiday, there'd be like 10 days off, two weeks off. Yeah. You know, and at the time we were based in Paris and it's like, woo, fantastic. Yeah. You know. Oh, man. But, but no, Phil gets it. He's like, if we're going out, we're going out and working. Yeah. So, which is great too. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Absolutely. Just, yeah. And if, especially if you're not a guy who gets out and, and, and searches around town and, yeah. and explores. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah sometimes I feel like it's weird. Like we, I, with Keiko Matsui, I used to go to Eastern Europe all the time, like Kiev, and we'd always do an orchestra show there. So mm-hmm. we'd be there for a week or whatever. And each year I'd go back, I'd be like, it's just weird to me that I know my way around this foreign town, right? you know, or Tokyo, you know, right. or like, how is it that I get here and I'm familiar Right. You, know, you get home and you forget about those things and this is your world and then, and then 
you end up in Tokyo, I'm like, I know exactly where to go right now. This is just right. weird. You know? This is the noodle place to hit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I can't wait to get back to, yeah, the ramen spot, man. <laughs> So there are a lot of us out of work right now, uh, waiting to get back to playing shows and touring. And I know I've had to do whatever I can do to take my mind off the situation from time to time. And one of the ways to pass the time is to catch up on some books you've missed. But if you're like me and you don't love to read, (laughs) there's another way you can consume. Audible.com has thousands of titles to choose from, including audiobooks about music production, songwriting, the music business, music theory, instructional audiobooks, and biographies of your favorite musical heroes. But besides audiobooks, you can also listen to podcasts, theatrical performances, A-list comedy, and exclusive audio originals you won't find anywhere else. Right now, you can get a free 30-day trial if you visit audibletrial.com slash dive bar rockstar that's audibletrial.com slash dive bar rockstar and you can catch up on your audio reading i'd like to take a second to thank you for listening to the dive bar rockstar podcast as a new podcast getting the word out is a vital part of what it takes to keep the show on the road uh or off the road as the current case may be if you would like to support the podcast all you got to do is subscribe wherever you listen And if you have an extra minute or two, please leave a review. You can also share and follow the podcast on your social media apps. Okay, enough begging. I hope you're having fun. And once again, thank you for listening. I mentioned you're a phenomenal reader. And I think that that's, uh, for a horn player, it's kind of your bread and butter. Used to be. It's not as much anymore because once again... Like we're saying, producers aren't writing horn parts as much. Got you. So more of the time now, I'd say about half and half. Hmm. I go in and there's printed out parts and this is exactly what we want. And the other half is like, yeah, I need something exciting here. I need something punchy here. You know, or we'll get, you know, there'll be, (laughs) there'll be a part that's kind of lame and we're like, you know, you're kind of walking on eggshells and like, so... We always put things in question form, right? Are you sure you want us to play it this way? Are, right. Would you like us to work on this articulation? Because you're not <laughs> sure how married they are to the part, or right. if the producer thinks it's just a genius part that he's come up with. Yeah, or you if know. he just printed out the thing from his logic, right, right. from the MIDI score, and <laughs> yeah. it's ridiculous to look at. <laughs> but yeah, for a lot of years, reading is. And still, you know, for movie dates and anything like right. that is, is really important. And you went to Cal State Northridge? Yeah, two which, years. Which weird, like, it's like this unknown, I hear about so many players or I see so many great players still coming out of that school and mm-hmm. so many great players went there yet outside of LA, I don't think people know about that school. Well, once again, it, it's kind of like you're getting it straight from the source. Yeah. Because it's in the valley, you're surrounded by players who are working full time. Yeah. You know, so it's it's not known as like an artistic school, like you're coming out of Berkeley as a blowing player with a voice and something to say. You know, you're coming. <laughs> not everybody. Well, will. it's still just a school. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, you come out of Cal State Northridge, you're ready to work. Yeah. How good were your reading skills when you got out of college versus after? That you know, as as much as I sucked at memorizing, I was really good at reading. 
Yeah. And and I realized that this the key to sight reading is never sight read. Never be playing it as you're looking at it for the first time. Interesting. There's always time to look at music ahead of time. So if you go, if you do a film date and, you know, the film date typically runs 10 to 1, mm-hmm. 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. and then 2 to 5 if it's a double. So if it's a 10 a.m. in an 80-piece orchestra, all 80 pieces are in their chairs at 9 a.m. ready to go. And every one of them is looking through the book. Ah. Everyone is like, what do we got today? What are we looking at? And if there's anything in their book that's difficult, they're shedding that over that hour, they're shedding that part. Hmm. So when the baton drops at 10, they're sight reading. Right. But everyone's already put an hour looking at the parts. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, and, and, and it makes total sense. And it's, it's happened to me in sessions as well. But I think the most recent reading I've been doing, you know, was in that wedding band that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. Impulse. We've had other people, you know, that have played in that band as well, where the reading is like, intense and it's sometimes it's like here's the chart while you're playing the other song so there's no time to even right. you know and not always sometimes there's time right. to, to go over it ahead of time but so at my best i could i could read eight bars ahead of where i was playing mm. so even if you have no time to look at the chart when they count it off i'm looking ahead right i'm looking down so right so once again you're never being surprised by anything as you're playing it in that moment mm-hmm. I'm glancing ahead and go, oh, here's a trouble. Oh, here's a key change. Okay, get ready for that. Here's a, you know, right. here's a quick lick. So yeah, the key to sight reading is never sight read ever. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> because I always I always think about like, it's so hard to um, to practice sight reading because you need that intensity of being on stage to do it. Right. But I like your way better. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, you know, most of us, try their hardest i guess i've again it's just more the casual scene and and uh i mean even on something like you've done the academy awards not the academy awards i've done the grammys and i've done the emmys uh and the bet awards and 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 even on those award shows is there time to rehearse and stuff and see the charts or yes cool yeah there is um and but once again anytime you're tossed into a situation where you're supposed to sight read look at it ahead of time yeah and and Work on your chops so you can read at least two bars ahead. Mm-hmm. Two bars ahead is doable for everyone. Right. And But, you know, four and eight, you're really getting a good lay of the land what's coming up. Mm-hmm. So it, nothing surprises you. Wow. You know, my, my thing is, is always practice at home like you're doing a huge show or you're doing a big recording session. Try to put that kind of pressure on yourself to play as precise as you can, as in tune as you can, as in time as you can. And when you go out and perform, try and perform like you're at home. Try and be relaxed. Wow, that is great advice. I'm gonna have to work on that. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm definitely the opposite. (laughs) Not always, I'm pretty much putting pressure on myself at every moment of my life, actually, but. That's what we do. Yeah, but it's it's a hard game, It's, it's really interesting for you know, some people that aren't in it, when you look at a band of musicians, you're, oh, they're having so much fun and everything is so, this is, must be the greatest life in the world, in in the world, you know. But sometimes you're on stage just being like, don't fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> and you know that certain players that you're with are going to be 
on your ass if you do. And, you know, and there is this certain, like, especially when the more jazzier things, you know, some people would, I don't know, once in a while I say a comment and my wife says, don't be mean. And I think to myself, you don't even know what mean is. You've never <laughs> been on stage with this guy or that guy or, or, you know, like the pressure that can come up. And, and, uh, so how do you maintain that kind of thing in those? I'm sure you've been in these situations or maybe not. Maybe you're, well, I mean, first of all, I'm not, I'm not really a jazzer the right. way those guys are yeah where they're out doing it every night and and that you know i never worked on on the lexicon the way those guys have for me improvising was something that i i truly wanted to be an original creation that i came up with and worked on stuff on my own and i didn't memorize a ton of brecker solos and a ton of you know hank mobley and coltrane right. and all that i studied them and and listened to them and and really, you know, got into what they were doing, but not to what the level of jazzer would do. So, right. I, you know, I'm I'm really not in that scene. Right. You know, and once again, jazzers keep me working and, they, you know, yeah. they show up to a gig that pays great and they bitch that the music isn't cool. <laughs> and they show up to a jazz gig and they bitch that the money isn't great. Right. And, you know, yeah. it's just they, they live this negative you know, dark place. And it's like, I don't want to be there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, and that's not to say we don't get critical on ourselves or on other players. But what, what I found is that when we have players that we don't dig, <laughs> the tip off is those are the guys that you're most polite to. Mm, right, right, yes, exactly. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, nice meeting <laughs> you, man. Okay. Good. Yeah. Good playing with you, you know. And the guys that you dig, you're just slicing constantly. Yeah, yeah. You know, your friend, right. you're like, dude, what the hell was that you were trying to do there? And, right. You know, you suck. And, yeah. You know, you you dig into guys you really respect. Mm -hmm. And guys who just aren't cutting it, you're just very polite to. And yeah. inside you're going, oh, that call was wrong. And right. We won't make that again. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're getting the number out of your phone. Just right. Delete. <laughs> well, you know, and that's yeah. for me, because I came up, I ended up being a contractor around town, right? Uh, and mainly for the casinos, which I just kind of fell into. And and you know, for both of our careers, we have fallen into situations that we've taken because it was the opportunity that was afforded us in that moment. And right, you know, you were a smooth jazz bass player, and sure, mm -hmm. I'll be smooth jazz. And then you were a country bass player, and you're like, yeah, I'll be a country bass player. <laughs> Heck yeah. <laughs> You know, so the opportunity came up for me to contract and contracting is the easiest gig on the planet because you're calling musicians and you're offering them work and yeah. hopefully paying them a decent wage and, and right. nothing easier, yeah. you know, and, and as a contractor, I can, I can say that what I'm looking for in a musician is I never want to have to think about you ever. Right. You know, <laughs> The most successful guys are the guys I don't have to think about at all. Right. I know. And, you know, consistently I, I've called some legendary players to come work on gigs. Doc Kupka from Tower of Power and Tom Scott and Leland Sklar and Rick Baptist on trumpet and heavyweight, heavyweight, legendary guys. And always, 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 they're the first ones set up at rehearsal. You know, never complain, never bitch, play their butts off laugh tell jokes easy to get along with i don't have to chase them down on breaks right you know, you know never have to worry about them yeah 
You know, so that's always what I'm looking for when I contract is people I don't have to think about. Right. Because <laughs> there's all this other stuff that I have to worry about and take care of. You know, and I think it's the same for any artist you're working for is be invisible for that artist that wow. they never have to think about you if they don't have to. Yeah. It's really interesting because I've never heard it from that perspective because a lot of musicians complain. Like you have like Keiko Matsui, for instance. Awesome, but great to work for. But you have to get used to the idea that she's only going to talk to you when you're wrong. Uh-huh. She's only going to correct you. Like okay. if you're doing great, she's not going right. to. She'll just thank you. She's very polite. Mm-hmm. But it's not like she's going to be like, oh, that was a great solo. She's like, okay, next song. You know? <laughs> and then that means you're good. Right. There's a lot of artists and a lot of people like that. Right. That's like a different way of sort of that it kind of explains it from the other side because you know as you know musicians sort of are sort of inherently insecure a lot of times and, and, and narcissistic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's all about me, except when it's not about me, and then it's about me. Right. Yeah. 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 You yeah. know, and and from from the artist standpoint, they're worrying about their performance, of course, yeah. and the lights, and the are the ticket sales good, and. Yeah. They have to do press in the morning and then they have to get on to the next town. And, you know, they've got a million things that they're thinking and worrying about. Yeah. And don't be one of those things that they have to worry about. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I've worked with guys who like go into sessions and they're the jokester guys and crack a joke and notice me and, uh, you know. Right. And that just, it was never my thing to be that guy. And right. And maybe it takes you a little while longer for people to remember you, but... I think ultimately it's the best way to go. Love it. So I met my wife, Autumn, on the High School Musical Tour. And she was working for Monique Coleman, and her brother was an actor in it. But she was always, like, kind of hanging out with the band because we were just cool. But she never... It took me a while to get to know her, and she just was like, oh, you were just invisible Eric. (laughs) And for a long time I was tripped out about that until I think this moment it was like the reason is is just because of that effort I right. don't want to be noticed necessarily no. I'm, I'm just the bass player anyways it's not my job to be sticking out right it's my job to do everything right and if I'm doing it I don't you don't need to say anything exactly you know and exactly yeah, that's and ultimately those are the guys who get called back and keep working and yeah. that's why you're getting the great gigs that you're getting because you know you show up you're on time you got a great attitude you kill the gig you go home yeah done right <laughs> thank you <laughs> <laughs> yeah well well i really enjoy working with you as a leader because you because of all that stuff and it just works with what i'm attempting to do as a player anyways but i love that you are all there's always charts you know that are good charts that work and you know even your rehearsals are, are really efficient you it feels like you don't want to rehearse much which i kind of i think that you and tell me if i'm wrong but it feels like you enjoy a little spontaneity yeah you know you want some some freshness to everything you don't want to overread this stuff down you know <laughs> I, you know I, I don't want to waste guys time and and mm. and also my job what i want to do is i want to hire guys who are great at what they do and then cut them loose yeah I'm not going to tell you how to play bass. Play right. bass. Right. <laughs> exactly. If I have to tell you how to play bass, then you're the wrong call. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, you know, I'm calling guys who are very confident in what they do and can just step up and play. And I can say, play a solo here. And then, okay. Yeah. And step up and play it. You know? Yeah. So well, it's, it's always, fun. it's always a pleasure when you call me. I'm always anxious yeah. to do it because I know it's going to be great. And it's like, you make it easy for a guy to do it for the right people who don't right. need 
you know, because my other thing is like, people go, oh, do you have any questions? Just give me a call. I mean, I got the chart. I got the time. I don't need to talk to you. You know, like I don't, don't have right. any questions. You know, right. like I'm, you know, anything I can, else I can figure it out. I've played music before. You know, right. but there are other people that are just like. You know, you hire them, and your your phone is ringing off the hook all all hours with stupid questions. Like, dude, I don't know. Just listen to the CD. It's all right. there. It's all there. You know. Right. Anyways, but um, yeah, we don't want to be babysitters. Right. We yeah. Show up and do the game, and and you know, hopefully, we all have enough going on where you don't have the time to do that anyway. Right. Yes. You know. It's yeah. Like, I got this other stuff I'm working on. Plus, I'm still trying to shed and become a better player. You know. Yeah. Plus, I'm trying to write some original material. Plus, I, you know, got this show coming up or whatever it is. You know. So, yeah. no, no one has the time. Let's be efficient. Get in. Have fun. Yeah. Get the hell out. <laughs> <laughs> Cash a check. <laughs> Man. Well, we're going over, but if you. If you're not whatever, don't have any gigs. So I have a couple more <laughs> things I'd like to ask you about. Yeah, man. <laughs> uh, mainly like the, uh, the Michael McDonald record because he's another big hero of mine, mm -hmm. and, and you were on his Wide Open record, mm -hmm. right? And so uh, was was that a good experience? Michael's the best. Yeah, the best. We and he did. has a producer credit, so I'm assuming he was involved. He a was lot. there. He was there the whole time. Really. Michael's another one of those guys who lets you do what you do and expect you to do what you do and, you know, and wants input from you if you, th if there are ways to make the parts better, uh -huh. but, um, but everything, what that was, you know, a session we walked into where the charts were done and, and written and sounded great. And we actually did the first time I met Michael was in 2000. He was doing the, uh, at the NAM show, the National Association of Music Merchants for those who don't know, mm -hmm. is a show in town. And, and Yamaha puts on a big show every year. And in 2000, they honored Michael McDonald. And so I was part of the horn section for that. And we rehearsed all day. And <laughs> Michael says, okay, I got to get ready for the show. And he tucked his shirt in. He said, okay, I'm ready for the show. <laughs> Just the most oh, that's so cool. easygoing. You know, another time we were doing Clyde Davis's uh, pre-Grammy party. And he wow. was talking about his son and his wife, Amy Holland, who's an amazing singer. And he was talking about how he was wandering through his house and Amy was working on a song. And Amy, do you need any help with that? No, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Get out. Just let me do it. And then his son was working on a song. And can I help you? No, no, no dad, leave me alone. Leave me alone. <laughs> we're having this conversation. And as we're having the conversation, we hear, and ladies and gentlemen, Michael McDonald. He's like, oh, I'll be right back. And just walked straight out to the stage, crushed the song, <laughs> crushed it, then walked back off. He's like, yeah, I can't believe my family won't let me help them with their songwriting. <laughs> just wow. the seamless kind of, wow, all right, way to own the stage. Wow. Yeah, so he was, he's fantastic to work with. That's so cool. That that would definitely be another dream gig if you're if you're listening, Michael. Michael. <laughs> but it's so you know it's just great to hear that about your heroes. The, you know the whole thing about don't yeah. meet your heroes. And there are you know plenty of people I've met and I'm like oh I don't really want to work with you. you know? <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, he was great. He was you know most most of the legendary singers have been great. Yeah. Patty Labelle was fantastic. Well, I was going to ask you about. The White House. That was my next thing. Is that what you were talking about, or have you, you've worked with sure. her? Yeah, a few times. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, but they did. PBS did a tribute to the women of soul at the White House uh, when the Obamas were were there, 
And so we flew in and rehearsed for the day before the show and then the day of the show and then did the show. And it was a cavalcade of Patti LaBelle, Melissa Etheridge, um, yeah. Jill Scott, Aretha, whoever else I'm forgetting, yeah. Ariana Grande. Right. And Janelle Monet. Janelle Monet, Tess Ann Chin. Mm -hmm. You know, so really so much fun. And they were, <laughs> we're rehearsing and Jill Scott comes up on stage, she comes up to the horn. She's like, I'm so nervous. I've broken out in hives. <laughs> and we rehearsed and she sounded great, you know? Yeah. And then Ariana Grande comes up, she comes up to the horn section. She's like, I'm so nervous. I'm going to vomit right now. <laughs> <laughs> We're just all kind of feeling, you know, not only singing at the White House and in front of Obama, but in front of Aretha Franklin. Oh. Because the producer did a really smart thing in that he had the singers all be in the room right. as each other were singing. And that was really smart. See, to, I'm just, is it? Yeah. Oh, man. I would be like, you don't want to watch this or you'll never be. I was so impressed because Patti LaBelle comes out, opens with Over the Rainbow, mm -hmm. destroys lives. like, And then I think Janelle Monet is next and I'm like, what are you going to do now? You know, like, yeah, oh. but then Janelle does tightrope. Yeah. And, well, yeah. And crushes that. Yeah. And, and, and that's know. so impressive. Everyone, everyone come out and they're just, they're just amazing. Yeah. Melissa Etheridge. Ah, I was like, okay. Because yeah. at first you're like, how's that going to fit in with all this? And then she does that. Uh, I'm the only one. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that fits in quite well. Like she destroyed it. And a so song cool. that she sang that didn't make the broadcast, she did Midnight Train to Georgia. Oh, wow. And crushed it. Oh, wow. Just took everyone by surprise. Yeah. That she had that kind of soul, you know, because everyone knows her as a rocker chick. But yeah. she was fantastic. Yeah, I just remember thinking, oh, that's why she's the right. way she is. She's right. special. Yeah. That's not... Yeah. Yeah. She's got that thing. <laughs> so it was great that, you know, they, everyone was in the room. So everyone really upped their game because yeah, <laughs> that's a good point to fall, yeah. you know? So yeah. we had a blast and man, to, to be, you go through security and suddenly you're on the other side of that black gate and you're like, holy shit, I'm on the other side of the gate, it's the white house. And then, you know, for me, I'm looking like, Okay, where are the Secret Service guys? Okay, there's the guy on the roof. There's the the two vans in front of the White House that are always running. The engine's always on. Whoa. You know, and so and you're in the White House and I'm looking for all the panic buttons. Okay, there's one in the corner there. There's one behind that book. <laughs> wow. That's intense. <laughs> it was so much fun. And then, you know, they, there was a there was a receiving line to meet the Obamas before the show and they take a picture and, and there's a naval lieutenant who introduces you and, and so the lieutenant takes me and, and President Obama, this is George Shelby, he's playing sax in the show. George, how you doing? And we shake hands and I said, you know, at the time I said, I said, thank you for the Affordable Care Act because that's allowed my family to have medical insurance and he's like, hey man, that's what we're here to do and work and we talked about music for a minute. Wow. And then they handed me down to Michelle Obama and the naval lieutenant introduced me and I said, thank you for all you've done for music education in schools, because it's so important and kids get so much out of that. And she said, you're so sweet for saying that. And she reached out to give me a hug and time just stopped. <laughs> because no, for all the things that I've been briefed on in White House protocol, no one talked about hugging. Wow. And on either side of the Obamas are two genetically engineered human beings that are just 
huge <laughs> six five double wide neck and you can see that the guns popping out on either side and she's reaching to give me a hug and i'm like oh, 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 oh no what, what's going on <laughs> help someone and her arms are going past me and i look and i was like damn she really does have better arms than i did <laughs> <laughs> And dude, I gave her the worst hug in the history of hugs. I was like, oh, okay. All right. Thank you. I'm, I'm keeping my hands visible at all times. <laughs> wow. But they were great. And I forget what some part of Eastern Europe was blowing up at the time. So I thought maybe the show was going to be canceled. But wow. they came in and he hung the whole night. He was there. There was no AIDS rushing in with last minute, whatever. And you know, wow. so much fun, such an honor to be there and, and be a part of that. And Greg Fillingaines was the musical director and Greg has a real gift for finding new, fresh things with old songs. Mm -hmm. He just makes arrangements sound fresh. And, and yeah. I've been lucky to be with him on that. And in the Grammys, the tribute to Aretha Franklin. And he just, that's really, he's an amazing player, but he can make any song just sound contemporary yeah yeah, yeah so the white house was great you know and not to get political but you watch all this stuff on tv and politics has become such a a cartoon in a way it must have been just the fact that you said a naval guy introduced it like when you're there it must be like oh shit this is the, the leader of the free world it's you know whoever it is you know what i mean and and you really realize at that point it's not this person is not this person it's who he represents right you know and it, it's the the representation of the government and the representation of democracy and the representation of why we're all here and what we're all fighting for and what we all believe in and it's yeah so it's really sad as i'm pretty much a centrist at this point which means everyone hates me you know i'm not <laughs> yeah, i'm not right. extreme left I'm, I'm not extreme right you know i, yeah. I can i can find things on both sides to get behind and support and endorse. Right. And it's laughable to me the, the concept that as 330 million people were supposed to be either this way or this way, uh, you know, but I know it. It's, uh, <laughs> the reality is people make money off that divisiveness. Yeah. You know, and so they, they encourage that and plug into it and get people to buy into it. And, you know, yeah. There are times I wish, man, I wish the aliens would invade just to give us <laughs> a common enemy, a common enemy that we could come together and, you know, I know, set a lot of this aside. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was great to be there and just you really felt pride in the country. And not only that, when when we were driving around, the people in D.C. really took pride in D.C. And, you know, oh, Warren Harding would have cocktails over there every night and walk over and, and yeah, you know. I love D.C. I really think they're the best music fans because they're the most boring people. You know, they're sitting in an office talking about politics all day, you know. Right. And, and then, they, then they get to emote, you right. know, and like, I don't know, I've, I've right. always loved playing there. Well, and, and for me, like I've played in D.C. where we've hired local D.C. musicians, which are from all the armed forces, right? the airmen of note and, and all the great bands. Yeah. So for me personally, I'm sorry to say this, I, I had much more confidence in a DC band than I had pretty much anywhere else because mm -hmm. they just came in and slaughtered the parts. Yeah. 
you know, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. We used to do uh, USO shows at uh, Constitution Hall with Keiko. Mm -hmm. And we would, it's again, it's an orchestra thing. So we'd be there for a few days. And I had to get used to people being like, um, uh, this is a G. Is shouldn't that be a G sharp, sir? <laughs> you know, like this just sounds odd, but amazing sounding, you right. know, musicians and right. and the whole thing. And I, I remember talking to them, and they're like, "Yeah, this is my job. Like, I get paid a salary to come here and play in this orchestra. Right. I had to do six weeks of basic training, and then I just come here and and play my right. instrument. You know, it's right. like a really cool. Now I'm recruiting people right now. I don't know." <laughs> I don't know why, <laughs> but it was always a really fun, you know, yeah. those here in, in DC for some days and it's just so fun. Yeah. Because it's, it's hard not to get patriotic when you're in that town. It's I just agree. All the, all the history and every picture you've ever seen, you know, no matter what side you're on, there's somebody, Martin Luther King stood right here. And oh, so, we're, we're, so we're set up in the East Room of the White House and there's a picture of George Washington behind us. And as we're setting up, and Usher comes up and he says, that picture is the one that Dolly and Madison cut out of the frame and took with her when the British invaded and burned the White House. So please be careful. Yeah. Wow. And I'm like, cool, which is fine. But then every six minutes, someone else would come up and say, that's the picture that Dolly Madison... <laughs> <laughs> and now you just want to start screwing with people. Right. Now you want to start, oh, this picture here that I'm putting my finger on... <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but the 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 real deal history that's there is is incredible and and to get make yeah. to be able to make music with those people in that circumstance was yeah and you know also I, when i was watching aretha franklin stand three feet from the first black president yeah, I was pretty wide-eyed the whole time and trying to drink. And it's like, okay, don't forget this. Don't forget this. Be in this moment. Be pre be here right now. Yeah, right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, man, thank you so much for coming out and telling me all your stories. I mean, I'm, there's not even, we haven't even, usually when I start doing notes for this stuff, I just start brainstorming, you know, and usually sure. I got about four and a half pages of notes per guest. And that's after, you know, another six or seven hours of, of working on it with you. Just the brainstorming is four and a half pages. <laughs> now I'm going to start asking questions about just the topics. And I'm like, you know, you, you have such a diverse uh, career, you know, that you yeah. do so many things that it's just hard to cover in, sure. in in an hour and a half or whatever you know so maybe we'll have you back on if you're willing later <laughs> can we do this like tomorrow <laughs> yeah, I, <know. laughs> I mean i don't want to next week mess I up know. your busy schedule yeah let me check my calendar uh. <laughs> oh man i've known you for probably close to 20 years now because you played at Cafe Cordial with me and like I was probably here a year and October 9th will be 20 years so um it's it's always great playing with you it's always great hanging with you you too Matt thanks for coming my pleasure all right don't get COVID <laughs> too late wait <laughs> what <laughs> you said you were tested <laughs> I didn't say what the result was you said I was tested <laughs> uh. I, I love how he kind of talks in movie language. You know, when he was talking about sax solos, I, I brought up that there aren't any sax solos in pop music, and he went right to it's because of the movies kind of getting lazy and using it for love scenes. And then when I brought up sight reading, he went right to a movie session and uh, talked about the baton dropping at 10 a.m. I thought that was pretty cool. 
Um, I think that's a very unique to LA kind of thing, you know, and I've been saying this for years, but I think that this town is becoming less and less of a music town really for original bands and artists and stuff, because, you know, it's such a centered around TV and film kind of town. It's an industry town, you know, it's kind of hard to grow a fan base here locally. Um, I can attest personally to that after trying to, you know, spending some time in clubs working on my own records. It's hard to get people out. It's an industry town and people are working on entertainment all day. And, and it's, you know, going out to see a band is generally not, uh, you know, something they're just going to naturally do. I think it's something good to keep in mind if you're planning to move here as a songwriter or a band or something. It seems like your music doesn't matter as much unless it caters to TV or film. And if it does, it, it can make a lot of money because that's kind of the only way to make money anymore anyway. So it's a, it's not a bad uh, thing to, to keep in mind when you're writing your songs. I don't know. But, you know, hit me up if you disagree with that, if you're, if you're living in L.A. and, and uh, you can make a good argument that there's a great thriving music scene. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I'm out of touch. I don't know. Hit me up. Let me know. I also liked when he talked about college hyper-analyzing music. I thought that was really interesting. It kind of, it reminds me of something non-musicians like to say if I ever mention that I don't like math. Well, music is, music is math. And the truth is that music is a form of emotional expression. The way that we record music and the way that somebody decided to write it down and analyze it hundreds of years ago is math. And I think it's easy to get lost in the math when you're in music school and forget that somebody made noises that were pleasing to the ear and made feelings happen. You know, that's really what we're talking about. <laughs> then somebody else tried to figure out what's happening and how to notate it. And that's what we study, but that's not really music. You know, having said that, studying your craft is absolutely essential when it comes to anything in life. You know, just... It's just try not to lose track of what it's really about. And the fact that George makes a conscious effort every day to remember why he plays music is one of the keys to his success, in my opinion. I should also add that being aware of this may not be a requirement to get work, but it will make you, you know, it's going to make you a better musician. And that may be the edge that will get you a gig over the next guy. George mentioned working with Johnny Halliday, who was a huge French pop slash rock star who started in the 60s and had a great career right up until he passed away in 2017. He mentioned a Herbie Hancock record. He said possibilities, but he meant to say River Letters to Joni. That's the record that features Wayne Shorter and Joni Mitchell and, uh, and other singers as well. It's a really great record. I would definitely check that out. The West End of London is the Broadway, air quotes, of London, of course. It's the theater district. And George plays the WX5 MIDI wind controller by Yamaha, and that's what he triggers the vocoder with. So you might check that out if you're interested in starting a career in vocoding. Is that a word, vocoding? I'm not sure. I hope you guys had a good time. I'm a Wow, you've made it to the end. I'm hoping it's because you completely enjoyed yourself and are now filled with knowledge and inspiration to move forward with your dreams. If that is the case and you would like to stay informed of new episodes, live events, and general news, please go to divebarrockstar.com and sign up for the mailing list. 
If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or complaints about anything you hear on the show, please email me at fanmail at divebarrockstar.com, and you may even end up on the show. We at the Dive Bar Rockstar Podcast, with all of our hearts, thank you for listening, and remember, it's all about dreams. <laughs>